welcome back to Emory's Creativity Conversations podcast. This podcast takes excerpts from the Endowed Speaker Series, the Rosemary McGee Creativity Conversations, and turns them into podcasts. I'm Maggie Becker, the host and producer of this podcast. I work for the arts at Emory, and I'm an Emory alum of Theater Studies and Creative Writing. I'm joined long distance by the arts at Emory intern, Laura Briggs, to introduce the Creativity Conversation with Dante Brown and Blake Beckham. Laura and I are talking over Skype today due to coronavirus shutdowns and social distancing. But we thought it was kind of a nice break from being isolated to sit and talk about creativity. This is a really interesting time for creatives who might not have some of the jobs that they plan to have, but who now have found a lot of free time on their hands to be creative. It's, I think, a stressful and exciting period of time. Laura, tell us about yourself. Hi. Yes, uh, I'm the Rosemary McGee Arts Fellow. I graduated from Emory in 2019 with a double major in chemistry and dance and movement studies. And I'm super happy to be back working on staff. It's been great to feel like I'm giving back to the arts community at Emory, which really did a lot for me when I was going through college. So happy to be here. Happy to have you and happy to see your face long distance. (laughs) Yeah, this is the first conversation I've had with somebody who's not my roommate in quite a while. So it does feel great. What conversation did you choose to talk about? So I was really intrigued by the conversation between Dante Brown, who is a New York-based choreographer, and Blake Beckham, who is an Atlanta-based choreographer and dancer and one of my personal heroes and mentors. I will admit that originally I clicked on the conversation because of her, but it ended up being a really great treat to hear Dante talk about his creative process, about his teaching, and about the way he creates his work. I was struck by how similar our thought processes are when it comes to dance making. Ooh, talk about your thought process for dance making. Yeah, yeah. So you'll hear in the conversation that Dante talks a lot about the way he draws from histories in order to create movement languages. And that's also something that I put to use in my creative practice. I'm very interested in deep diving into history, into research, into theory, and then using that by the book research and translating it into a movement-based language. I think a lot of choreographers work from movement first and then later they craft the movement in order to produce a meaning but I'm much more interested in using theory using history and using current events to work backwards and to construct movement from that I think that creates movement that's much more interesting and that carries a lot more meaning than meaning that is placed right on top of existing movement so for Dante what he's working from is kind of a big smattering combination of black and queer history, which is where he's coming from. So he talks a lot about Stonewall. He talks a lot about voguing and mopping and that rich history and also uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think it's really exciting the way that he throws everything at the wall and waits to see what sticks. So every single day that he's going into the studio is like an experiment. The way he talks about that is really interesting too, because I also, as I mentioned earlier, have a background in science. So it was refreshing to hear an artist talking about dance as an experiment where you have a hypothesis and you're trying and trying and trying over and over and you're you're attempting to get some kind of result but you don't know what's going to happen. I feel like my two fields of study are so rarely intertwined that it was great to see him talk about dance as an experiment, dance as a form of science and vice versa. I think that's so excellent, especially based from your Emory education, as well as Emory's philosophy as a whole, because Emory is a research university. And I think so often 
even even individuals at Emory forget that art is an experiment and the whole process is an experiment and yeah. research. Yeah, it's an experiment. It's research. And it also it requires resources, just like any sort of traditional scientific research requires, which I also think is often undervalued in our world. And I think this time where I've been at home for the past two weeks nonstop has given me a lot of space to do that research and have the like time and the resources to start creating something that I probably wouldn't have been able to if I was busy like handling my life. What are you working yeah. on? <laughs> so I am really interested right now in the queering of ballet. So I grew up doing ballet from the time I was eight years old until the present day. I'm still doing ballet using my kitchen counter as the bar. And I never saw myself represented on those stages as I grew up and started to understand my queer identity and started to develop a better relationship with my body, I realized that ballet wasn't serving me and it also wasn't serving a large swath of the population. A lot of the storylines that you see in a classical ballet are prince and princess. It's very heteronormative. It's very patriarchal. It's often very old-fashioned and racist and white. It's very white. white. It's <laughs> it's literally just white. So <laughs> because this tradition has been kept very preserved in its original state and there's a big stigma against the progression of ballet. There's like a very big stake in keeping it the way that it always has been. I am very interested in destroying that and <laughs> starting to cull from ballet what is so beautiful about it and then apply that to bodies that look very different than the bodies that are normally doing ballet and storylines that are very different than the ones that we're seeing on the ballet stage. So a recent example of that is a work that I made in February, which is called Violet Adagio. And it's a lesbian interpretation of the Rose Adagio from Sleeping Beauty, a very, very famous scene from that ballet where Aurora is greeted by four suitors. They each give her a rose and she's supposed to choose one of them to marry, which is very objectifying. And she's also only 16 years old, which is really weird. She has very little agency in making this decision. And that's reflected in the movement. So the men are parading her around on the stage. She's being passed from one suitor to another as if she was an object. When I set out to revisit this ballet, I decided to use a cast of all queer women who are embodying and living the experience of queer womanhood in their everyday life. I got rid of this idea that one person is the object of the affection and the others are the subjects like desiring her. So everyone in the work is desired and desiring equally. The movement language is very, very different from classical ballet. So they're weight sharing equally. They're moving around on the ground using a modern dance lexicon. And then instead of the roses, I gave each of the dancers a vibrator. I think by replacing the rose with like an overt symbol of female sexuality, it's kind of impossible. I mean, it's kind of hitting you over the head with the message that this is not your traditional rehashing of a ballet. And then it also makes it funny and quirky and way less serious than the original ballet. And it makes it fun, which I think is something that gets lost. And I think it also takes a wonderful 
total break from the idea of like flowering and deflowering and brings in this great idea of like you're saying sexual empowerment and things like that so I love Mm -hmm. that I actually never thought about the rose as being a symbol of her eventually being deflowered although I think that's definitely part of what's happening so then to think about it being replaced with a vibrator which is something that you do alone usually it really it really returns the agency back to a woman in regards to her own sexuality which I think is very powerful and very necessary in today's culture. Laura, thank you so much for sharing your craft and taking the time to chat with us. I hope you continue to stay sane and healthy, and I hope that for our listeners as well. Please enjoy excerpts from this conversation with Dante Brown and Blake Beckham from 2016. Today our conversation is between Dante Brown and Blake Beckham. I'll start with Blake. Blake is a choreographer here in town. She is the artistic director of Lucky Penny, which not only produces her work, but produces the work of other contemporary artists. She and Melina Rodriguez have been working together since 2009, I think, working on projects that can only be described as monumental. They're quite large, and they get tons of people involved, and they make these incredible sets, and then put very sophisticated choreography inside those sets. She graduated from Emory with a degree in English and dance, and then she has a Master's of Fine Arts from Ohio State University. Dante Brown is the artistic director of Warehouse Dance Company, which is a dance company that's kind of a collaborative collective out of New York City. Dante has taught at Bates College, at Wesleyan, at Ohio State. He has an MFA from Ohio State University. If you don't have a degree from Ohio State University, I don't know that you can be in the room. Dante graduated from Wesleyan University with a degree in chemistry, dance, pre-med. So I'm sure some, yeah, I'm sure some of you will relate to that. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to see what these two artists have to say to each other. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna let them talk. Thank you guys. Let's give them a big hand right now. This is really fun. Talking to artists about what they do is kind of my favorite thing. So thank you, Emery, for making space for this. Dante, maybe because this audience is primarily college students. You could talk a little bit about where you were when you were in those seats as a, a college student yourself and your relationship to dance, how that may have evolved over the course of your college studies and was it during college that you had a moment of insight about choosing dance? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I spent a big amount of time at Wesleyan freaking out in chairs just like these. Um, um, I started, when I went to college, I started going straight to chemistry. I wanted to be a doctor. That was the goal, which what I thought was the goal. I also, um, I was really into music. I played the oboe for seven years, and I was really heavily involved in music composition. I was composing for concert bands. So I, I was heading in that direction. And then my friend actually dragged me to a audition for a hip-hop troupe called Precision. It's just a fun, super club. And I auditioned. I got in by the grace of, of some higher power. And, and I, I fell in love with dance. And I had a friend who was a sophomore dance major. She said, like, hey, I think you really did contemporary dance. So I went to an audition that they had for their spring dance concert. And I started my first collaborative process my sophomore year in college. And after that process, I decided that this was something I, I really cared about. And I was always a very shy person, and 
going to college was an opportunity to, to challenge that, and I felt like dance was a way of challenging that even more. I think the moving body articulates things I can never articulate using language, so I, that's why I stuck with it. But I was still heading to med school. I was like, no more music, going to dance, still chemistry, going to med school. And I was sitting in the library my junior year doing a physics lab, and I just remember just being like, calling up my mom and being like, it was almost like coming out again. It was like the most like. <laughs> it's like, Mom, I think I'm gonna pursue dance. <laughs> and, and like she actually received it in a very positive way. And she said, if you're gonna do it, then you need to do it. And so that actually drew me towards the Ohio State University where I ended up getting my MFA right after. But I definitely had those moments, and, I, and I'm sure a lot of you feel this or have felt this where you're like, I don't know what the hell's going on in my life. Um, and, it, and it comes in waves, but I actually think that's a good thing. That means that you care enough about your trajectory and the things that you're doing to question yourself, to better yourself. It'd be weird if you wake up every day and didn't give a crap. So yeah, that's kind of how I arrived to dance and yeah. my college experience with it. And you're based out of Brooklyn now. Yeah. Talk about your decision to go to New York and what the city offers you, maybe also the limitations of working in New York, how it feeds you. I moved to New York because I thought New York was the dance mecca. And it is in, in some ways. Fortunately, I, I feel like dance now is more accessible in many, many, many locations and dance in New York City is not the only place to dance. But at that time, I, I was excited just to try it out and to experience it. So I moved with, with several friends in a three-bedroom condo with five of us who we were very friendly. <laughs> and I tried to pursue the dancing thing right after grad school. But I will, will say I what kind of drew me to New York as well was because I went to the Bates Dance Festival many, many years, for four years before I even moved to New York. And I met such a warm and welcoming community there. I felt grounded when I arrived. But I will say, like in terms of the grind and the hustle in New York, it's a it's its own beast and its own animal. And I think you have to learn how to feel grounded and whole and feel like yourself as you navigate through that space. Honestly, that's like any other place. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes knowing yourself. But I will say, that in terms of what's happening now, in terms of the dance field, unfortunately, there are spaces that are closing down and there are institutions that are closing its doors. And I don't think it's a demise of dance, I just think it's a way of re-strategizing, or strategizing how to keep dance moving and propelling forward. And that's just rethinking how we make dance accessible, who's our audience, how and what we consider a performance. Okay, so how do you think that you're tackling that in, in your creative projects in your life? Like, maybe you could share a few examples of wrestling with yeah. that. What is, what is performance? How do I share it? Who is it for? Mm -hmm. How do you come to know these things and re rediscover and redefine? I think it's a lot of trial and error. <laughs> I mean, when I first moved to New York, it was a lot of like apply to every show as a choreographer. Like apply to everything. You get a lot of no's, but it'll be uh -huh. some yeses. And a lot of the performances were proscenium stages the traditional showcase format where you get a 10 minute slot, mm -hmm. 10 minutes of tech, and you just in and out. Backstage, the green room was probably more enticing and exciting than 
perhaps even the show. Um, <laughs> but it's just as important to me. But I will say, I think there's something about shifting where the performance lies. I am interested in non-traditional spaces, whether it's a gallery. Um, we, our last big show that we did in New York was in the actual warehouse um, in Bushwick. And that kind of opened my eyes in terms of who actually will come into those spaces. Mm -hmm. And I saw my peers, and less in terms of older generations who could afford to go to those performances, who could afford those tickets. It felt more welcoming, it felt warmer. I don't think it's the cold, dusty warehouse that's doing that. I think it's the people who make it up. And I'm still continuing to strive for that. And in terms of my own processes, I have this thing called Open Up. All my rehearsals are open to the public. People can come. People, students I've met in the intensives I've taught throughout the years, or students I've had like four years ago, come to come to rehearsals just to observe. And if there's space, they can learn the piece. I think I care less about glory and fame and more so about impact. This field can do that. But I, that is, it is a hard question. I think I'm constantly struggling with that. How can I continue to make dance more accessible, more inviting? I'm really curious about an open door policy in rehearsal because for me, rehearsals oftentimes feel very private. It feels like we're developing a secret language that only we know, and then if someone else is in the room, it's like, oh, I don't know how I feel about this. But then also, you know, obviously, what we do is made to be experienced with witness. Right? It's, it's made to be shared. So I'm really interested in that uh, instead of waiting for this kind of moment of culmination mm -hmm. where all of a sudden, now we show it to people. Now it's done and we show it. That what is cultivated by opening your doors along the way. But also how that would probably really change the dynamic in the room amongst the dancers. And uh, yeah, have you, have you had any observations about what changes in the dynamic between the dancers when you have other people present, other people coming and going? That's a great point. It becomes, and this is something that we, like, we actually talk about, and I try to encourage my dancers to kind of dismantle this idea of when someone comes into the space, it autom automatically becomes a performance. Right. And, and like, we all know it. Like, someone starts to watch and turn it up. And that's a thing, and it's something to recognize. But I also, for my, even for myself, when someone comes into a room, I, I like, it's now choreography time. Hello, this is my choreography voice. <laughs> We're going to talk like this. And, please, please, and may I? And can you? And should we? And it's like, okay, like, that is a veil that we put on because we're uncomfortable about something. So let's move past that. Let's be uncomfortable. Let's just wallow in that shit and see what comes out of that. It takes practice and it takes me constantly talking to my dancers and be like, hey, like, I actually do say this to some of my dancers sometimes, like, hey, just let that go. <laughs> like, or like, I, I joke around. My partner is also one of my performers. And we joke a lot and like to shut it down <laughs> in that way. But yeah, it's something to recognize. But also I think there's something when the witness also becomes part of the process. So asking them about their perspective and opinions about what is happening or asking them to join in on the activity and see how that changes the container that you're trying to exist in. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more. We're starting to get a window into your creative process, but I'd love to just hear you talk more about a creative process and what that looks like and feels like and how long it takes and what your rituals are and yeah. your your thought process. I and this is something 
I'm, I'm coming to terms with it because I used to be so stubborn, like, no, my chemistry side is done, I'm over it. But I actually think my process is kind of like more like an experiment. I have my hypothesis in terms of like, I'm thinking about, for instance, right now, in terms of working with Emory, I'm like, okay, my hypothesis is if I take the history of the Stonewall Inn protests, the Black Lives Matter movement, this idea of the American dream, and voguing, and put it all in one container, what siphons out? What is like what is the like the real nugget, what is the through line through all those histories that makes people who are observing those histories lean forward and give a crap. And I like that tangential thinking. I think it's important also for myself right now to look at histories beyond my own to try to find a way of kind of locating why these occurrences keep happening. So that's kind of like my hypothesis. And then I go into a process and I just play. I play with the language of, of the histories. For instance, with my process, we were talking about the well, 1980s Harlem, the ballroom scene in terms of voguing, watching Paris is burning, we're talking about mopping. And how mopping is, is like one of the gentlemen said, it, it's, it's stealing. <laughs> it's stealing, but it's, it's, it's stealing. It's um, dealing with finesse, with a um, certain type of um, intention to, in order for that material to become a part of you, to symbolize an aspect of yourself. And I found that fascinating, that a material can do that, a performance of self. So I got a bunch of costumes from a costume shop, thank you. Uh, <laughs> and I laid it out on the floor, they came in, and I was like, you have 10 minutes, mop. And they ran out, they, they fought, they fought for items, they had to, they had to sw swap with each other, and then we had, a, we had, a, we had a, walk, a walk off. One by one, they would go down, and each time they would take off another layer. What I became fascinated about is less, yes, it was a performance of shutting down, but it's also something really interesting about when they have to struggle to take that item off. What does that symbolize? What can that be? And then for myself, I'm thinking about, okay, what if we take that? experience and we look at in terms of American bandstand mm -hmm. and that what type of material they put on, what type of relationships were happening in that history, what happens in the voguing scene. So there's a lot of questions that come up, but I think in the process of questioning, creating a space for the questions, we can find these nuggets that hopefully, using my choreographic eye and skills, <laughs> can, can make a world that people feel invited into. But still, it's, it's potent and loaded and grounded in these histories that we know and can attach to. I will say, like, yes, with all the theory and, and my interest in histories and research, there's something about physicalizing it and trying to physicalize it. And not saying it's like, this is tree and this is history, but sure. like the process of trying to ground myself in that is fascinating. The movement language becomes very unique. Can you talk about this? making history contemporary, embodying a history, and moving between this space of scholarship and space of performance, and where those things blur. Like, what are some of the, the tools that you use when you walk into the studio, you've been reading about something, you have ideas and images in your mind, how do they actually become manifest with people? A lot of text movement translation. I am really interested in actually pulling, so for instance, for our, this process for Emory, I had them just write a prose of how do you clean your house? Be as detailed as possible how you clean your home. And, and after that, and now go through, look at all the nouns. Instead of the item, replace that with either he, 
she, or they. Take that, now talk about the item again, but how do you destroy that item? Now replace that item with he, she, or they. There's something about starting with a source and finding the other layers behind it or stepping away from it. Kind of always returns back to the thing that I care about because that's really where my brain is. And also, I'm kind of, I'm at this point, I'm like, everything is a performance. <laughs> in, in the sense of um, me even observing them doing their writing can be a part of the dance. And that's definitely for more of the, I think, Judith Butler and sense of performativity in terms of identity, politics, and performance. It's within the ritual and the repetition of the ritual that makes the performance or the performativity of that act valid. If we do the same act enough in a physical space, that's how we build our physical language. If I do this enough and do it with enough intention and power within a work, this movement would matter. But right now, it doesn't matter. So this thematic content that you're grappling with with the Emory students is, is part of a larger creative inquiry, right? Yeah. So maybe you could share a little bit about the bigger project and where you are in that exploration and all of it entails. Yes. I, for some reason, thought this was a great idea, so now I'm doing it. <laughs> um, but it's called Our Lips Project. Essentially, I found rural communities around cities and I find LGBTQ communities there. It can range from, oh God, <laughs> from like AA meetings to NA meetings to LGBTQ centers to going to bars and clubs, grinder, all the social media, everything. And I ask people if I can just record just their lips and I ask them questions um, either about, it, it can go many, many ways. Sometimes it's about their coming out <laughs> stories in that way, in terms of how do, how do you find a sense of self through that pathway. But a lot of the times it's just asking stories about this joy. I think we live in a time where you turn on any social media or any media, the first thing you see is grief. The first thing you see is pain. The first thing you, you see is hate. I'm questioning in, in my life as a 29-year-old, like, what happened to people fucking smiling? Like, <laughs> what happened to people, like, really caring enough about each other that we, we can make each other smile. So this is an effort not to show that every queer person or LGBTQ person, yes, we all have something to go through. We all go through things. Yeah, that is life. And I'm not saying that like your pain is not valid or your trials and tribulations aren't valid. But I'm also asking that maybe perhaps we take a second and see the other side of ourselves. And our lips are such a personal and vulnerable space that is very unique. And also it can be very anonymous. And you'd be amazed at how willing people are to share. Also it's interesting what other body parts people are willing to share. <laughs> Instead of the lips, I'll leave it back. <laughs> yeah, um, but I'm, I'm working with the Emory Pride. So ultimately, is it a digital repository for the stories that you're collecting will be housed on a digital platform? Yes. Yeah. So, so right now, that's the, that's the plan. It's kind of like collecting stories. I want to take my time for this project in terms of how it manifests, whether it being like this grandiose dance performance, mm -hmm. or maybe it's just an online interactive platform for people to connect to. That's just as much as the dance, especially the design of it and technology mm -hmm. behind it and how it comes to be than like a senior stage performance. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a powerful project, I just have to say, to carve out a space for these voices that continue to be marginalized. I wonder if you've been surprised or 
discovered anything about your community or how you situate yourself in terms of a community by going out and collecting these stories? It's interesting because being a queer person of color also carries another way of navigating through the world. Jose Munoz talks about this idea of disidentification. And it's a process of disidentifying with the identity, but also being a part of the identity in order to find validity in oneself. And in life right now, and and this point in my age, I, it's very clear. So there are moments where I, I feel like I'm like, even in an LGBTQ club or location, I still feel kind of like the outsider. And I'm at this point where I'm okay with that because I know why those systems come to be. And sometimes those systems are placed there and unknowingly to the people who are even in the room. And so I don't, I don't judge the person, I judge the system. And I use my body and, and my voice in the way that I operate as a way of, of breaking that system down. That's his life. <laughs> um, it's just like being a person of color, like, that's just how you go from day to day. What's great about it is that I am lucky enough and thankful enough to have art in order to process that and being able to show the many layers and aspects of that perspective. I've been feeling more and more that just persisting as an artist, uh, pursuing any creative act is an act of resistance. I wonder what you think about that idea. Yeah. And also, is a body always political? Art is an act of resistance, yeah. I do think all art can be an act of resistance, depending on what, which lens you want to see it through. In the sense that like, it always brings a community together. It always raises some question, always forms some sense of discourse, whether or not you want to engage with it or not. Sometimes I feel like the work that I make, and that's more so me being judgmental of my own stuff, like, oh, blah, <laughs> that didn't do anything. Um, but thinking about it, actually, yeah, it does. It does have impact, and it is resisting something. And in terms of bodies being political, yeah, I think all their bodies are quite political. It's just more so about you activating your voice. I don't think it even has to be like your voice. It can be your voice in order to engage in some discourse. I and mean, this is the thing, this is just me just being so open-hearted. I don't, I don't want to say that only certain bodies can be politically charged. Right. Because I think it's so dependent on space and which public or private space or counter-public space that we, we reside in. I want to circle back to the idea of community and how your creative practice, you've touched a little bit upon this already, but how your creative practice engages community and reimagines community, also how you define your community mm -hmm. and how you participate in it and care for it. I definitely think community is, for myself, it is inclusive. I do have a one personal rule, I'm just like, no shade. In the sense of like, <laughs> if we are craving this open container for people to exist in and be full-heartedly accepted, why are we putting existing or giving off any negative energy to anybody? It's not helpful. It's not productive, so why does it exist? In terms of how I work with community and dance, I do think in terms of like the idea of mopping and that exercise, there are ways, sometimes it's not just about completing the task, it's more so how people socially engage with one another. So even for the mopping exercise, like we were saying earlier, what made me more excited was less of a catwalk, but it was more so seeing how these lovely women were interacting with each other yeah. in a different way.
And sometimes as an educator, as a teacher, I'm aware of that and constantly thinking about that. What are ways to bring people together that isn't always like, now turn to your neighbor and find another person and hug. <laughs> I don't think it always has to be that way. And also, I think it shows in, in my work. I think there's a really big difference when you just bring people together and like, here, here are the steps versus we share this experience together. Let's move together. Let's talk about group listening and how we utilize that. The creative process can just be such a potent space for forming community, even these temporary communities, like we're together for this intense experience and then maybe there's the performance ends and we're never quite together in that same group again. But I do think it's transformative. I think people carry that unique community out into the world and how they meet the world. I know for me, I hold on to that a lot in terms of the meaning and the, the purpose and the impact of the work we do, which is so temporary, which is so painfully temporary. <laughs> um. <laughs> but it's something really satisfying, especially as a choreographer like and teacher, that like you're not just teaching them technique. You were talking about this, like you're also teaching people how to be people yeah. and how to engage with the world. And because we are interacting, we're moving our bodies and we're already in such a vulnerable state, we have the capacity as educators to really start instilling things like kindness, hope, yeah. perseverance, excuse my language, giving a shit about something, um, how to engage, how to revolt in a positive way for a greater cause. I feel like if more people had that capacity and vulnerability and skill set, we wouldn't have Trump as a <laughs> <laughs> and, and, like, and I'll kick that soapbox off, but like, but really though, like, I, like you were saying, what's more important is that when you see that person again, all that sensation comes back to the body versus like, um, you kicked your face, girl, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> so you do spend quite a bit of your life teaching. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you might want to share more about your teaching philosophy, what you get out of teaching, what teaching teaches you. I like bringing joy. That's just like a natural, that's just thank you, Mama Brown. But that's just what she instilled in me. It's an ongoing line that she always says when she calls me, it's like, make right choices. And then there's a comma and it's like, don't let anyone steal your joy. And that's something that like that still carries with me. I think that's something really important. And in terms of my class, I think if I can create a space with, that is a positive space, we can tackle all the obstacles where we're realigning and respawning our pelvis and talking about like dynamics and weight dynamics and what that means. Like those stuff, people aren't afraid to execute and attempt. My class is centered around, especially in terms of the physical level about us finding a dynamic range and finding it for yourself and knowing what that is for you within this framework. A lot of my work comes from like OSU, um, from Laban Studies, and thinking about effort and directionality and also a, a sense of locating distally from your center. As a natural mover, I'm heavily in, interested in flow. If, if people were in my class, like, you know. So I, it involves a lot of momentum head-tail connection. But what really it comes down to at the end of the day, though, is about instilling something else beyond that uh, within that container. So this is just one way, I think, that you're trying to feed your community, mm -hmm. identifying this need for people 
to be together in performance. I wonder what else you think your community, maybe specifically in New York, but we could also talk about the field at large. Like, how do we take care of this dance thing? How do we take care of each other? How do we take care of the future of dance? How do we take care of dance in America? Or dance in New York or dance in Georgia? What is our responsibility as artists, both in the studio and beyond the studio? Go to people's shows. <laughs> That's one of the best ways, is just reminding each other that there is a community there. I mean, there is no money in the arts, let's be real. And that's something that we just have to accept. Instead of us as set about the lack of resources, let's be grateful for what we can have, what we can share, what we can trade, and how that can help sustain us. I also think we need to start thinking outside of the box a little more in terms of, again, like what we consider performance, what we consider a gathering or a class. And I know it sounds very like hopeful and optimistic, but I think that right now, we, I think we need a little bit of that. Because if we keep saying that dance can't happen, then it just won't happen. Because things are declining, because things are fading away, if we give in to that, then like, yeah, all it will be will be Alan Ailey and these larger dance companies, mm -hmm. which luckily and thankfully they still exist. Even they are having hard times and having financial crises as well. I think that when systems fail, there's a great opportunity. Systems and traditions. I was talking recently with some artists about Detroit. Had, I had the chance to be around a bunch of artists from Detroit, and there's something so refreshing about this we have nothing to lose attitude. Because they're like, I don't know if my trash is going to get picked up. I don't know if there's going to be like police to provide security in my neighborhood. Like All systems are like on the fritz, on every level of the social structure. And so everyone's like, we're gonna devise new systems. Like we're gonna create a community that works for us and is rooted out of the immediacy of what it means to be like neighbor. And so artists are feeding that in a really amazing way. And I just, I think there's a lot to learn from that spirit of like, when something's not working, change this. It's just by finding another route. And it's, it's frustrating as hell. But this route was awesome. <laughs> like this trajectory was great. Why are you stopping that? Or maybe it's just a shifting of language of just like instead of stopping or halting, it's redirecting or rerouting the path for dance that might provide a little more comfort, especially for, for people who have been in the field for a long time and, and, feel, and feeling a, a shift that's happening. It has to be very jarring. Do you feel like there are traditions or techniques even that we should abandon where it's like it's time it's time to shift or what what do we need to reinscribe do everything my way <laughs> now i because I, I do appreciate history i think there's so much value especially like physical like the techniques like graham cunningham feldenkrais alexander technique like all these techniques that like we take mm -hmm. they have value for a reason they are our foundations I think we all should at least like, try yeah. and, and be a part of those histories so we know where we come from. What's fascinating sometimes, and I laugh at myself even doing this, of feeling like we're so like, oh, I just, uh, did you see that wheel I just created? That wheel was amazing. I, I thought of that wheel. I, actually, no, Louis Fuller thought of that wheel a long time ago. <laughs> like, you didn't create lights on a dress. Like, you know, like yeah. it's, 
I think we have to know where we come from so we don't keep creating the same wheel over and over and over again. But I will say, I think what needs to, what needs to depart is, and this is a total personal thing, in terms of who is allowed to dance, what types of bodies are allowed to dance, and what types of bodies are considered the body, the dancer's body. That's just me being selfish. I'm like, I want to dance, that's you. Um, but, I, but I think like you don't have to be a, a certain body type to know how to move through space, to know how to change time or fluctuate time. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for listening to this Rosemary McGee Creativity Conversation. This podcast was brought to you by Emory University and Arts at Emory. It was produced by Emma Yarbrough and me, Maggie Becker. Be sure to check out our other podcast episodes and follow us on Facebook at Arts at Emory and Instagram at Emory Arts. Mm-hmm.